0: You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Go ahead and take your seats. As you're doing that, if you would open in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 3. While we're doing that, I also want to dismiss the middle schoolers. Middle school class is meeting right down the stairs over here. So if any of you middle schoolers would like to join them, now's the time to go. They meet every Sunday down there, down the stairs. You know, we recently began a new series. Uh, We're going through the book of Exodus now, studying through it chapter by chapter and, and verse by verse for the most part. And this series is called Be Set Free. We're looking at the life of Moses in the book of Exodus. You know, one of, the most, uh, one of the best ways to understand a doctrine is to see it at work, see it in practice, see it in somebody's life. And that's kind of what we have here in the book of Exodus. There's almost no better place for us to go in the Bible to understand what salvation is and who God is as a Savior. There's almost no better place we can go than the book of Exodus. And as we look at the life of Moses, one of the you know, greatest epic figures in the Bible Today we come to a section where Moses has an encounter with God and and perhaps there's nothing more relevant to us here today than to be looking at Moses' encounter with God because ultimately that's what you and I need as well, is an encounter with God. So let's go ahead and read our text this morning. Those of you who, if anybody needs a Bible, go ahead and put your hand in the air. We'll make sure our ushers get you a Bible so you can follow along. Also for those of you who like to read your Bible on your phone, we encourage you to use the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, YouVersion Bible app, uh, in there you can go to events in the menu and you can look up our church and you can follow along. I've even got some notes in that that aren't even going to be up on the screen. So for those of you who want to go a little deeper and interact in the sermon, that's a great way to do it. Let's go ahead and read our text this morning. Our text comes from Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that, he turned aside to see. God called to him out of the bush, and he said, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, Here I am. And he said, Do not come near. Take the sandals off your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you, that you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. And we pray that as, this, and as we study your word this morning, Lord, that we would have a vision of that, that we would see in your word, that we would understand what it means to really encounter you and to know you for who you are. We pray that we truly would know you for who you are, that we would know you as a God of fire. And Lord, we ask that you would bless this time that we spend in your word right now and teach us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. So imagine if I was to come up to you and I was to say, I want to have a relationship with you. And you would say, well, hopefully you would say, great, I want to have a relationship with you too. But then what if I said to you, well, so I want to have a relationship with you. But here's the thing, I would like to think of you as a Korean hairdresser from Detroit. And you say, well, unless you are a Korean hairdresser from Detroit, you would say, well, that's nice, but that's not really who I am. We say, well, that's who I'm going to think of you as because I've always wanted to have a relationship with somebody just like that. And you say, well, well, maybe I'm not the person for you because that's just not who I am. I mean, those are all really good things, nothing wrong with any of them. But that's not who I am. If you want to have a relationship with me, you've got to accept me for who I am. And much in the same way, if you want to have a relationship with God, rather than telling God who you'd like him to be, we must come to him and get, him to, get to know him for who he is in reality, in actuality. And if you do that, here's the thing you'll discover. You'll discover that who he is is more wonderful than anything you could have ever imagined or made up on your own. Here in Exodus chapter 3, we've been studying the life of Moses. And we come to one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible. This is Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush. Up until this point, Moses has believed in God in the sense that he believed in God's existence. Of course he did. But it wasn't until this moment... That he had an experience with God that was personal. An experience with God that changed his life from that day forward. And maybe there are some of you today and you're in that exact same boat. That's the situation you're in. You believe in God. You've always kind of believed that he exists. But you haven't yet personally encountered God in a way that altered your life. Today as we look at Moses' encounter with God, my hope is that the result will be that all of us, that we would encounter God, that we would see Him for who He is, and that it would shape and affect our lives moving forward in a lasting way. The title of today's message is, The Name of God. And there are three big points that I'd like to bring your attention to in this text. First of all, we're going to talk about the detour. There's a detour in this text, and we're going to talk about it. The second one is, The Name of God. And thirdly, we're going to talk about the most astonishing thing of all. So, the detour, the name of God, and the most astonishing thing of all. Let's begin by talking about the detour. The story begins, as we read, with Moses. He's working as a shepherd. He's tending to his father-in-law's flock in this area, which is like in southern Egypt, and it's a, it's a, he's alone in a barren desert wilderness. When Moses was younger, he never would have imagined that one day his life would look like this. Moses was raised As a prince in Egypt, he was raised to be an aristocrat. He was educated in the very best schools. He had wealth and he had opportunity and he had everything handed to him. And he was in line to inherit the throne of Egypt. But then something happened that changed everything. In a moment of passion, Moses lost his cool and he killed a man. He killed a man who he saw was beating a Hebrew slave. And Moses lost it and he killed this man in a moment of passion. Moses, see, he knew that he was a Hebrew by birth. He had been adopted by the daughter of the Pharaoh, but he knew that he was a Hebrew by birth. And because of that, he had a special place in his heart for the Hebrew people, even though he wasn't raised amongst them. So one day when he sees this Egyptian guard beating a Hebrew slave, he loses it. And he strikes the man down and he hides the man's body. Moses was convinced that it was his destiny in life to liberate the Hebrew people from their Egyptian slavery, from their bondage, that his destiny in life was to become their leader. He was convinced that everything in his life had prepared him to do just that. But when he killed this Egyptian, well, it kind of ruined everything. See, this was a capital offense. At this moment, Moses became a fugitive from the law. He became a wanted man. And not only that... But rather than embracing him, the Hebrew people even rejected him as their leader. They rejected him. They saw him not as one of them. They saw him as an outsider. And even worse, they saw him as a murderer. So Moses now finds himself alone. He finds himself having lost everything. Killing that Egyptian was a huge mistake. And now he could never return to the palaces of Egypt. And now not only that, but the Hebrew people have also rejected him. And so Moses has nothing. He has nobody left. He flees into the wilderness. He ends up being taken in by a Bedouin family. This is what we saw last week. He ends up being taken in by this Bedouin family, this nomadic family who lives in the desert as shepherds and goat herders. And that's where he ends up spending 40 years of his life. 40 years in the desert. It was a far cry from where he had grown up in the palaces of Egypt. For the first 40 years of his life, Moses was somebody But for the second 40 years of his life, Moses was a nobody. He went from being a respected person to being a rejected person. He went from having everything to having absolutely nothing, not even his own herd of sheep. You see, to be a shepherd was considered the lowest rung on the ladder of society. So Moses went from being at the very top to being at the very bottom. And what's even worse, not only was he a shepherd, but he didn't even have his own sheep. It says that he was tending the flocks of his father-in-law, Jethro, out in the middle of nowhere. Needless to say, Moses' life had taken a detour, right? He, he never would have imagined that his life would have ended up here. That at 80 years old, that it would look like this. Everything has gone wrong. His life is now at a dead end. He, he's nowhere. He's supposed to be a great leader. At least that's what he believed. But yet here he is, advanced in years, dirt poor, nothing to his name, living in the desert in complete obscurity. This isn't how it was supposed to turn out, Moses would have felt. Now I wonder if there are any of you here who can relate to that. You're at a place right now in your life where you never imagined that you would be. When you pictured your life uh, and, and where you would be at this stage, you didn't picture it looking like this, whether that's... Your financial situation, you've you've hoped that you would be better off financially than you are, or in your career, you hoped you'd be further along, or in a different career, or or maybe in regard to your family, or, or to children. You just had imagined that you'd be at a different place than where you're at right now, and you're in a situation maybe that you never wanted to be in, that you never would have picked to be in. Your life has taken A detour, much like Moses' life took a detour. A detour from the way you imagined that it would go. But yet here's the thing to see. That it's here at this place where Moses' life is on this major detour that God meets him, that Moses encounters God. But there's another detour in this text. I guess you could say in the big detour, there's a little detour. It says in verse 2 that Moses saw something that he, he had no explanation for it. It was inexplicable. He saw a bush across the way and it was burning and yet it didn't do what bushes usually do when they're on fire, right? Usually you think of a tumbleweed. If you set a tumbleweed on fire, what happens? Well, it's consumed very quickly. It burns up, it falls apart. But this bush just kept on burning and it wasn't consumed by the fire. And so it says in verses three and four, Moses turned aside from what he was doing. He turned aside. He left what he was doing and he went and he took a detour within the big detour that his life is on that he has no control over really. He takes a, a minor detour. He, he was going one way, doing his thing with the sheep, but he sees something and he stops what he's doing and he turns aside. He takes a detour to see this strange thing. Moses' life was on a detour. Everything had gone wrong, but yet in order for Moses to get near to God... Moses has to stop what he's doing. He has to make a decision to stop what he's doing and go over and take a closer look and examine this burning bush that doesn't make any sense to him. You see, he could have easily said, no, I'm, I'm too busy for that. I, I'm, I'm being paid to watch sheep. I'm not being paid to wander around the desert and look at bushes. I don't have time to look at burning bushes. Now think about this. What is the burning bush? The burning bush is something inexplicable. It's something that doesn't make sense Moses he looks at it and it doesn't fit into his understanding of how things are generally supposed to work it's just that's not how things work and Moses how does he make sense of this you see when bushes burn they usually burn up and fall apart but this one doesn't there's something different here and so Moses says maybe I need to take a closer look maybe I need to find out why that is the burning bush was God's way of getting Moses's attention But still, Moses had to make a choice to turn aside and see what God was wanting to show him. And it begs the question, how about you? Has God been trying to get your attention in some way? Have there been things in your life that are like burning bushes that God is trying to use in order to get you to turn aside from what you're doing, your daily routine, your busyness, and get your attention? And if so... Are you responding to that? Are you turning aside and considering that? You know, in all of your busyness, will you be willing to let God get your attention? Are you willing to turn aside and look at the burning bush that he's sending you in your life? From your busy schedule, are you willing to turn your attention to the Lord and give Him opportunities to speak to you and show you things? You know, that's one of the reasons why we encourage everyone here. We encourage you, first of all, to be reading your your Bible, praying at home and doing that. But we also encourage you to get involved in a community group. We encourage you to study the Bible here with us on Sunday mornings. You see, what that is, all of these things, they're turning aside from the busyness of life and taking some time to seek God, turning your ear to Him and, and asking him to speak to you. You know, perhaps one of the very reasons why God had to bring Moses out into this desert place in order to speak to him is because life in the palaces of Egypt as a prince of Egypt would have just been too busy. Moses wouldn't have ever taken time to turn aside and look at a burning bush if he was a prince in Egypt. He would have had somebody else do it, right? He would have delegated that out. Like, hey, there's a bush on fire outside. Can somebody go put that thing out, right? Like, I've got more important things to do than to be going and checking on burning bushes around here. And in the same way, I wonder sometimes, it's when our lives are on a detour. It's when things aren't going the way that we hoped that they would, that they thought that we thought that they would. That it's in those times that we are actually more attentive to God speaking to us and God, what are you trying to show me through this? Because it's in those times we're we're more willing to turn aside and give our attention to Him. You know, it's been said, kind of quippy, but it's been said, and I think it's true, that God is more concerned about your character than he is about your comfort. I think that's, we can absolutely see that dynamic at work in Moses' life, and I believe it's true in our lives as well. So let me ask you this. Has God been trying to get your attention in some way? Oftentimes, it's when people feel that their life has taken an unexpected detour, when things aren't going according to their plan, when things in life don't make sense, that's when they encounter God in a unique and special way. It's certainly the case with Moses. Here in the desert, here in this burning bush, God is calling out to Moses. And I would just encourage you to consider this, that maybe God is trying to get your attention in some way. Will you be willing to turn aside and give your attention to what God might be wanting to show you and speak to you through it? Moses did, and that was an essential part of his encounter with God. The second thing we see here is the name of God. When Moses comes near to this bush, God speaks to him from the bush and God tells him, the first thing he says is, remove your shoes, remove your sandals because where you are standing is holy ground. This is the presence of God and God introduces himself and he says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And what does it say that Moses did? He hid his face because he was afraid. You know, throughout the Bible, whenever a person really encounters God, rather than being filled with warm and fuzzy feelings inside, more often they're filled with, filled with a sense of dread, a sense of fear, a, a sense of, and, a, and a, just this, filled with this sense of their inadequacy. When Isaiah had a vision of God, we read about it in the, the beginning of the book of Isaiah you know, for the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah, if you ever read it, here's, what, here's basically what it is. Isaiah is pronouncing woes and judgment on everybody and er- anybody around, right? He says, woe to you guys because you do this. And woe to you guys because you do that. And he goes on and on for five chapters. But then in chapter 6, something happens. And it changes Isaiah's tone completely. You know what happens? It says in, in the beginning there in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and the foundations of the threshold shook at the sound of his voice. And what was Isaiah's response? He said, And I said, Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Woe is me for I have seen the Lord, the King, the Lord of hosts. You see how Isaiah's tone radically changed in that moment when he sees who God is and as he sees who God is then he's able to see himself for who he is in that moment he gets a proper perspective on who he is and whereas before he's pointing the finger at everybody and saying woe is you woe is you suddenly now he's saying in the presence of God woe is me I'm lost I am a man of unclean lips I am an unclean person when Simon Peter first met Jesus and realized who Jesus was he says there in, in Luke chapter 5 that Peter fell down on his knees and he said this, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It's interesting, right? So when Moses comes into the presence of God, God doesn't say, come here, let me give you a hug. And Moses isn't filled with these feelings of warm and fuzzy butterflies and feeling great. No, he's filled with the sense of dread. And God says, you better watch out, man. Where you're standing is a dangerous place. See, in each of these cases, when people encounter God, they're overcome with the greatness of God and a realization of their own inadequacy. You see, this idea of holiness, holiness is what? It's the absence, the complete absence of anything impure, the complete absence of anything unclean or the complete absence of sin. The holiness of God is so powerful that it cannot even tolerate the presence of sin without consuming it without burning it up and so when moses comes near the burning bush and god tells him to remove his shoes because where he's standing is holy ground moses understood that what god is giving him here is a warning god is telling him hey man you are in the danger zone right this place where nothing unholy can exist because it will be consumed because it will be burnt up by the holiness of god and the message to moses is be careful You're in the presence of the holy God and you are a flawed person. So tread lightly because this is a dangerous place for you to be. God appears to Moses as fire. Do you know how many times God appears in the Bible as fire? Quite a few times actually. Later on we'll see in the book of Exodus God descends upon Mount Sinai when he gives the Ten Commandments to the people. And how does he appear? He appears as fire on the mountain. When he leads the children of Israel through the wilderness towards the promised land, he will lead them as a pillar of fire by night. In the book of Hebrews, at the end of chapter 12, it says this, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. So why is it that God is continually referred to in terms of fire? You know, one of the most uh, famous, historically famous, uh, examples of a person having a conversion experience is that of Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal was a very well-known French philosopher and mathematician in the 1600s. And when he died, they found a piece of parchment, kind of paper, sewn into the inner lining of his jacket, this normal jacket that he wore all the time. He had carried around this piece of paper for years and, and he kept it there sewn in here so that it was always close to his heart and it was always with him. And on this piece of paper, well, this piece of paper became known as the memorial. And, and it was his account of what had happened to him one night. And it was a few hours on November 23rd, 1654. And it was what Pascal referred to as his, quote, definitive conversion. And this is what was written on that piece of paper. It said, from about half past ten in the evening until half past twelve, Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and savants, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ. Interestingly, those words are very similar to what Moses experienced here in Exodus chapter 3, remember? The same name of God, this God as a fire appearing, right? Where Moses sees God as a fire in the bush, and God introduces himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what Pascal was experiencing that night, it wasn't about him coming to believe in God. See, he had already believed in God, in God's existence and everything. But this was something different. No, this is when he came to know God as a fire. Now, what does that even mean? Well, here's what it means. It means that although previously he had believed that God existed, he hadn't yet experienced God in a personal way that shaped him and transformed his life moving forward. The same was true of Moses here in our story. Think about the nature of fire. Think about other, you know, uh, back in the day, they used to believe that uh, the three elements, right, you had uh, you had fire, water, and, and clay or, or dirt, right? So think about those. Water and clay are things which you shape. You could put your hand in clay and you shape it. You put your hand in, fi- in water and you can direct where the water goes or where it stays. But fire is different. If you put your hand in fire, you don't shape the fire. The fire shapes you. The fire melts you. The fire changes you. It, it will melt you. It will consume you. It will change the shape or, and the nature of whatever it touches. You see, fire is different. Fire is both beautiful and attractive and at the same time dangerous and even lethal. To know God as fire means to come to know him in a way that you come to God and you allow him to shape you rather than you Attempting to shape him. Think about this. What was the name that God gave to Moses when Moses asked for his name? He said, I am who I am. God said to Moses, I'm going to... If I'm going to set the people of Israel free from... uh, Sorry. So... God says to Moses, I'm going to set the people of Israel free and you're the person I'm going to use to do it. And Moses says, well, wait a second. I already tried to do that once a couple of years ago. It didn't work out very well. They didn't accept me. They didn't want anything to do with me. They told me to get lost. So you got to give me something better than just, hey, God told me to come and talk to you guys. He goes, tell me your name. And then then if they ask me, what's your name? I'll be able to tell them. And God says, tell them that I am. I am who I am. And tell them I am has sent you. And Moses says, okay. See, God, see, what's Moses doing here? He's kind of giving God a little bit of trouble, isn't he? God's telling him, Moses, this is what I want you to do. This is what I'm sending you to do. And Moses is pushing back against God, and he's saying, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know if this is a good idea. You got to give me something more. Work with me here. And so God says to him, Moses, listen, I am who I am. I, I'm not whoever you want me to be. I'm, I'm not even perhaps in this moment what you would like me to be, but I am who I am You know it's very similar to the picture of God as fire. It is not you who shapes Him. it is He who shapes you. Many people do come to God with this attitude of, of who they would like God to be. They say, "Well, you know, I like to think of God as being like this and this and this and not being like this and this and this." And not surprisingly, when people come up with this view of who God is in their own mind that they've formulated. That, that God tends to agree with them on most everything, right? Tends to agree with them politically. Tends to agree with every decision they make. Very affirming. Of course he is, and that's not surprising. Because by their own admission, they, they created that God. That God is a product of their own imagination and conception and wishful thinking. But think about this. If you know that your God is just a con- is a, a product of your own conception of who you want God to be, How can you trust in a God like that to ever save you? How can you trust in a God who you yourself know that you made up? How can that God save you? And and furthermore, a God who is a product of your own conception will never challenge you. That kind of God will never say anything that you don't want to hear. That kind of God will only affirm you because you made him up. You made up the rules and you told him he has to play by them. But see, the real God is who he is, independent of you, independent of me, independent of our conceptions or our preferences. And he may not necessarily be who you would like him to be, and he may not always do what you would like him to do, and he may not always tell you what you would like to hear. But at least you know in that case that you're dealing with a real person. You're dealing with the real thing, not just something you created, but the one who created you. It's not you who makes the rules for him, it's he who makes the rules for you. The real God is a God of fire. He isn't shaped by you, but if you come near to him, he most certainly will shape you and transform you. This name, I am who I am, it refers to the fact that God has no equal. There is nothing you can compare him to. If you were to create an equation and you were to say, God equals blank, What would you put on the other side of the equation? There's nothing you would have to, only God himself can go on the other side of that equation. There's nothing that he can be compared to. The closest equivalent we have, even in the Bible, is that God is love. The the only thing is this. It's not exactly an equivalent because you can't flip it around. You can't flip it around and say love is God. So it's not a true equivalent. The, the point of this name, I am who I am, is to say that God simply is who he is. He is incomparable. In Hebrew, this phrase, I am who I am, it sounds like this. It sounds like haya, haya. Okay? Now when you hear that, I, I hope you can hear in there the word yah, which is from the word from which we get Yahweh. Really Yahweh derives from this phrase. It derives from the Hebrew word for yahweh to be the the Hebrew language some of you may know this in its written form does not use vowels so the vowels are implied and, and you just have to know where they are now in ancient Hebrew they used to write the vowels if you've ever heard of jots and tittles you know what a jot and a tittle is? it is the little punctuation marks around the Hebrew letters the Hebrew consonants which marked where the vowel sounds were to be in modern Hebrew they don't use those but even in ancient Hebrew, historically, the Jewish people would never say this name. They would never take this name of God on their lips because they were afraid of, that they might accidentally even take the name of the Lord in vain. They didn't want to do that, and so they were extra precautious to the point of they would never pronounce this name, they would never say it. When they would talk, they would replace the name of God with either the general word in Hebrew for God, which is the word el, or they would replace it with Adonai, which in Hebrew means Lord. And so they would, they would always replace it. And when they wrote it, even when they copied the scriptures out of reverence for God and out of this desire to not even accidentally take the name of the Lord in vain, they would leave out those punctuation marks which marked the vowel sounds. And so they wrote it as what we would say, like transliterated into English, it would be YHWH. It's called this, there's a name for it. It's called the Tetragrammaton. And the question is that over history, because no one was pronouncing this name because it was only written with consonants, people were not exactly sure how to pronounce it. And so if you've ever heard the word Jehovah, you know what Jehovah is, it's kind of a mispronunciation of the Tetragrammaton. And generally, nowadays, everybody agrees that the way it is to be pronounced is Yahweh, which derives from, directly, this phrase, haya, haya. I am who I am. It derives from the verb to be. See, this, this refers to the nature of God as the one who is eternally present. There has never been a time when he was not. There will never be a time when he will not be. He is. He is above everything. He is outside of time. It also refers to the fact that God is completely independent He relies on nothing for His existence. You know, you and me, we rely on all kinds of things for our existence. We rely on food, water, atmosphere, sunshine, oxygen, all the way down to molecular structure. We rely on so many things for our existence. So many factors, but yet God relies on nothing. He depends on nothing. He is the beginning. He is the source of all life. He is the pinnacle of existence. And He holds all things together. But it's precisely this, this fact of who God is, that he is incomparable and and that he is absolutely preeminent, that he is a fire, that he is not shaped by you and me, but he is the one who shapes us. And like fire, he is beautiful and attractive and yet dangerous and even lethal. Nothing impure can exist in his presence. And it's precisely that fact that is the key to understanding the significance of the burning bush. And that brings us to our third and final point, And that is this, the most astonishing thing of all. What's the most astonishing thing in this whole story? Starting here in chapter 3 and going on into chapter 4 as we look next week at, at God's call to Moses sending him out. There's this interchange that goes on between God and Moses. God is telling Moses, here's what I want you to do. And Moses is pushing back. He's resisting. He's kind of arguing with God. Everything that Moses says is a kind of complaining, even whining, a kind of pushing back against what God is telling him to do. And all the while, here he is in the presence of God, in the danger zone, in the presence of the God of the universe, in this place where he's in danger, being consumed, because he, a sinful man, is in the presence of a holy God. And yet, somehow... This is the most astonishing thing. Moses is not consumed. This is the real mystery. Moses is the real riddle in this story. How is it that Moses is standing in the presence of God and resisting a holy God and yet he is not consumed? How is it possible? Moses is clearly an imperfect man. And yet here is the God of the universe who needs nothing, who depends on nothing, who is perfect and holy. This God now engages this sinful man, calls this man to himself, and somehow the man is not consumed. He's not destroyed. It's incredible. How can it be? Do you see yet what the burning bush is a picture of? The burning bush is a picture of Moses. The burning bush is a picture of Moses as a, as a sinful person. Moses should be destroyed He should be consumed in the presence of God, but yet somehow he isn't. The burning bush is a picture of him. Now how can this be? How can it be that he's not consumed? There's a clue given to us here in the text, in the exchange between Moses and God in verses 11 and 12. In verse 11, Moses says, who am I that I should be called to do this thing? And in verse 12, God says, I will be with you. Do you you pick up what he's putting down? In other words, He's saying, Moses, it doesn't matter who you are. Moses, this isn't even about you. This is about me. What matters is not who you are. What matters is who I am for you on your behalf. See, that's a good word for all of us to hear. How is it possible for Moses to encounter God, enter into relationship with God after all the things that Moses has done, or all the wrong that he's done? As flawed as he is, the answer is this. It's not about who Moses is. It's about who God is. You see, the most astonishing thing in this story is actually the most astonishing thing in this world, which is the grace of God. That God enters into a relationship with sinful people, and yet those people are not consumed. How is that possible? It's by His grace. And by nature, grace isn't about you. It's not about who you are and what you deserve. By nature, God's grace is about who He is and what He has done for you on your behalf. You think back with me to that story of Isaiah. We kind of left it there, right, with Isaiah freaking out. Isaiah's having this encounter with God. He gets this glimpse of God's glory, and he says, Woe is me! I'm toast! I'm a goner! Because I know that I'm unclean. I can't stand in the presence of a holy God. I'm going to be destroyed. But then what happens next? Rather than being wiped out by God, what happens to Isaiah? Here's what it says in the next few verses. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs from the altar, fire in away, and he touched my mouth. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Now your guilt is taken away and your sin has been atoned for. Isaiah was able to stand in the presence of God, not because of who he was and what he had done, but because of who God was, because God had made him acceptable. God himself atoned for Isaiah's sins and made him clean so that he was able to stand in the presence of God and not be destroyed. And do you understand that is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ? That is the message of the gospel. That in order to, for us to come into a relationship with God, in order for us to stand in his presence, Jesus, through his death on the cross, God atoned for our sins, for your sins, so that you would be qualified to stand in his presence without being consumed see, many years after this, a young rabbi came on the scene in Jerusalem and he was teaching about the kingdom of God and he was teaching that you could know God as a father and that you could have a personal relationship with God. And not only that, but he preached a message of salvation in eternal life. And even more than that, he said that he himself was the Savior. And the religious leaders of that day, they confronted him over this and they said, wait a second, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are coming around saying these things? Do you think that you're greater than Abraham? They asked him. And this man looked at those religious leaders and then he said one of the most incredible things that's ever been uttered by human lips. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. And it says that when he said that, they picked up stones and they wanted to kill him. Why did they want to kill him? Was it because they were the grammar police? And they said, hey man, that was uh, you know, improper grammar there. Proper grammar would not be before Moses was, I am. Proper grammar would be before Moses was, I was. So they picked up stones because they were super zealous about grammar. No, of course that's not why. You see, this sentence that Jesus said, it does not make sense grammatically, but it makes perfect sense theologically. If Jesus would have said, before Abraham was, I was he would have been claiming to be roughly 3,000 years old, which would have been a pretty major claim in itself. But if Jesus would have said that to these religious leaders, you know what they would have done? They would have shook their heads at him and said, whatever, man, you're crazy. They would have just walked away. You're 3,000 years old? Yeah, cool. All right, bye. But see, what, what he said was something different. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And these stuffy religious types who don't usually get worked up like this, they picked up rocks, they went into a frenzy. Why? Because they understood what he was saying. He was taking the very name of God revealed to Moses and applying it to himself. And if that was not true, it was utter blasphemy. But what if it was true? See, he was claiming to be God. Jesus was saying, there never was a time when I was not. and There never will be a time when I will not be. I have no beginning, I have no end. What Jesus was saying was that He was God come to earth to save us. He had come to atone for our sins so that we might enter into relationship with Him and not be destroyed and consumed in His presence. He came to cleanse us, to justify us, to make us acceptable before Him. See, it was not long after Jesus made that statement that He was crucified on a Roman cross and he suffered and died and was buried and then he rose on the third day he was consumed on your behalf so that you could come into the presence of God and not be consumed he who knew no sin became sin itself for you so that through him you might become right with God The most astonishing thing of all is God's grace towards us, his love for us, that he would care this much about us, that he would love us this much, that he would willingly be destroyed in order that we might be able to stand in his presence and live, in order that we might have a relationship with him. Now, when you come to understand these two things, which this story brings to our attention, on the one hand, the incredible holiness of God that nothing impure can stand in his presence. And on the other hand, the incredible love of God, that he loves you so much that he gave himself for you so that you could stand in his presence. When you come to understand those two things, it does two things in your heart. On the one hand, it makes you incredibly humble because you realize how far you are from perfect. And on the other hand, it gives you incredible confidence because you realize how deeply God loves you and cares for you. This is the message of the gospel, that because of your sin, God himself had to die for you, but God loves you so much that he was glad to die for you. When you understand those two things, you cannot help but say, I want to be a burning bush. I want to know God as he truly is. I want to know him as a consuming fire that cleanses me, that shapes me, and yet doesn't destroy me because he was already destroyed for me so that I could live. Amen? Would you stand up with me and pray? Lord, we come to you today as we, as we see that Moses uh, took time from what he was doing and, and approached you. He turned aside. Lord, that's what we're doing right now. We're turning aside, lending our ear to you and asking Lord, if you have something to say to us, would you speak it to us? But well, I cannot help but believe that maybe there's somebody here today who would say, you know what? I am moses i am pascal in that story in the sense that i've always believed in god's existence but but now i realize that that's not the same as knowing god in a personal way that shapes my life that moves my life forward and lord i pray for anybody here today and i extend an invitation to anyone today who would say you know what i i've believed in god but that's not the same i realize now as, as putting my faith in him and knowing him as fire that cleanses me and shapes me. And I want to know God in that way. If that's you today, Lord, I, if that's you today, I, I pray for you that you would not leave this place without receiving the grace of God to you because he offers it to you. So we pray for you and just say, Lord, today all of us, whether those who are realizing it now for the first time or for those of us who have received the gospel and we we are very glad about it, Lord, those who embrace the gospel. Lord, would we embrace the gospel again today? Would we come to know you and, and say, yes, I will turn aside. I will give my ear to what God would want to say to me. And I will desire to know God as a, as a consuming fire who cleanses me, who shapes me. And thank you, Lord, that in your presence we're not destroyed because you already did it for us. Thank you for the gospel. And we pray that we would go out of here with confident hearts, knowing how much we are loved by you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.